At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Y'all be seated and good morning. What a day. Did you hear that bell? Oh my gosh. Once upon a time, once upon a time in the ancient city of Corinth, sometime toward the end of the 4th century BCE, the great king came to town. Now, this king, who actually is named in our, uh, in our Christian scriptures, this king at this time in history was probably the most renowned, the most accomplished monarch that the world had ever known. His name... Alexander the Great. And as Alexander came into Corinth, as he arrived into the city, the entire city, the statesmen, the dignitaries, the philosophers, they all rushed out to greet him, to see him, to meet him. But there was one philosopher, there was one philosopher in particular who Alexander was dying to meet. This singular philosopher, though, one Diogenes of Sinope, was nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found that day among all of the emperor's devotees in Corinth. Where's Diogenes? Alexander began to ask. Eventually, finding him in one of the suburbs of Corinth, the great king flanked on every side by a massive entourage, he approached the philosopher. Now, Diogenes was not in a lecture hall or in a library. No, he was stretched out lackadaisically on a dirt field, completely naked in the middle of the sunlight. And here is how the first century historian Plutarch tells the story. Quote, Alexander went in person to see Diogenes, and he found him lying in the sun. Diogenes raised himself up a little when he saw so many people coming towards him and fixed his eyes upon Alexander. And when that monarch addressed him with greetings and asked if he wanted anything, Diogenes said, yes, would you mind moving over a bit and stepping out of my sunlight? Alexander was so struck by this and so admired the haughtiness and grandeur of the man who had nothing but scorn for him, that he said to his followers who were laughing and jesting about the philosopher as they went away, but truly, if I were not Alexander, I wish I were Diogenes, close quote. Quite the story. And yet, Diogenes 
was famous in the ancient world for far more than just dissing royalty. As a leading cynic philosopher of the day, his behavior was, by any standard, scandalous. So much, though, so much for the ancient cynics. What about the ancient prophets? Prophets like we hear about in today's collect. Prophets like we glimpsed this morning in John the Baptizer, whose behavior was very much in the tradition of Diogenes, also very much in the tradition of, e of Ezekiel, who one time lay on his right side for 390 days straight, and Hosea, who married a prostitute and had two children with her. John the baptizer, he definitely gives off Diogenes-type vibes. See, John the baptizer, the last of the great prophets, John is the who, W-H-O, John is the who of Advent 2, of the second Sunday of Advent. But who exactly was John, and what was he like? In Matthew 3, 4, we read this. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I'm not sure if you've ever seen a picture or maybe in real life actually seen a coat of camel's hair. Maybe you've seen a picture online. Maybe you've seen one in a museum somewhere. But they look, well, the, the, the best word that I can come up with is mangy. Nothing at all like the debonair camel's hair sport coats that my dad used to wear when I was a little kid. Usually the hair of the camels is uncut, having grown out like long dreadlocks. And again, the best word I can think of is mangy or possibly dingy, not unlike John's several foot long beard, which in accordance with his vow never to cut or trim or groom it, would have been mangy and, yes, dingy indeed. That's how John looked. I wonder how he smelled. John's aroma was probably the first thing that people noticed about him. Do you think that someone who eats wild locusts and honey and never grooms himself is likely to bathe on a regular basis? I don't think so. Whether it's his beard his clothing or his body odor or his diet, John was not out to please people. Like Theogenes, he didn't give a flip. He didn't give a rip about looking good or cultivating a good first impression. This was just as true of his preaching as it was with his appearance and his hygiene. You brood of vipers was the opening line one time as he addressed his audience. Like Theogenes, John threw convention to the wind. He scorned social niceties. Prim and proper, he was not. But here's my question this morning. It's the second question. Here's my second question this morning. Why? Why? Why was John the Baptist, or Diogenes of Sinope for that matter, why did he care so little about convention and social norms, the norms of his day. Why? I will tell you why. Like Diogenes, John grasped the deep, deep truth of our lessons this morning. The world is passing away. 
This world is passing away. Heaven and earth will pass away, Isaiah tells us in chapter 40 this morning. All people are like grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. As for Isaiah, though, so much more, way more, way more is the case for Peter this morning. The heavens will pass away, Peter says, and the elements, earth, wind, fire, water, all will be dissolved. Now, for Diogenes, this likely meant that for him, literally nothing matters. All truth, all kindness, all relationships, irrelevant, futile, a waste of time. What is the fundamental truth about this world? For Diogenes, it's simple, transience. Transience. And transience, at least for Diogenes, means futility. Here today, gone tomorrow, like leaves in the wind, like sandcastles on the beach. And even though John would likely appreciate Diogenes' attitude, his perspective, for John, the implications are different. Yes, this world is passing away, he realizes, and therefore, what truly matters is, is what? Well, what does Isaiah say? Isaiah 40 that Brad read to us a couple of minutes ago. What does Isaiah say? The grass withers and the flower fades, he says, but the word of God will stand forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, the logos of God, will stand forever. And y'all, this leads us to our third and final question this morning. So far, we've asked who? John the baptizer. We've asked why? Why was John so strange, so countercultural? The answer, transience, the transience of this world. And now we come to our third and final question, how? It's Peter who asks and poses that question this morning. How should we live? Look with me at verse 11 in your little epistle lesson in the bulletin. It's right in the middle, right? It's the middle line, right in the middle of the passage there. Peter says this, since all things are to be dissolved in this way, do you see that? Since all things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading your life, he asks. In other words, how then should we live? And there's so much we could talk about at this point with this question, how are we supposed to live in light of the fact that the world is passing away? There's so much that we could talk about this morning, but I wanna keep it simple and I wanna draw your attention to one little word, one word that Peter uses in this passage after he asks the question, one word that he uses not once, not twice, but three times, and it is the word Waiting, waiting. Advent is about waiting. In light of the fact that the world is passing away, how should we live? We should wait. Okay, hmm. Well, what, what in the world does that mean? What, how are we supposed to think about waiting? Esperando. Esperar, waiting. How are we supposed to think about waiting? I mean, I don't know about you, but every sermon that I've ever heard about waiting, I don't know, it's, it's left me wanting more. Waiting has always seemed so boring. 
Like, what is it? Just sitting around twiddling your thumbs? How are we supposed to think about waiting? Well, I have an idea. Let's ask the experts. Let's ask the experts. Let's sit at the feet of the greatest experts on waiting. I have no doubt that the greatest experts in this room on waiting are women who've given birth. These women have, these women have experienced a nine-month process that perfectly illustrates the Christian life, that perfectly illustrates the waiting of Advent. I want you to imagine with me a pregnant woman. Now, something wonderful is taking place in her and through her. A wonderful gift is being wrought. W-R-O-U-G-H-T. A wonderful gift is being wrought within her. And yet, what is it that brings this gift about? Is, what is it that, 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 that keeps this organism in the mother's womb growing and developing? Is it the hard work of the pregnant woman? Is it the brute strength of her willpower? No. The truth is that the activity of the mother during those nine months is not the main work. It's not the most important work. The main work of childbirth is what? It's simply the process of nature running its course. It's the myriad of things that the woman has no control, no direct control over. Can the woman force the sperm and the egg to come together to form a zygote? No. Can she try really hard to bring about the growth of cells in the fetus? No. Can she actively follow a series of steps to bring about the formation of the baby's skeleton? the eyelids, the cerebral cortex, no. The truth of the matter is that the woman can directly cause nothing. In this sense, in this narrow sense, the pregnant woman is completely and utterly passive. But does that mean that she's inactive? That she's 100% idle? By no means. There's all manner of activity that a wise woman can perform during the nine-month term. She can eat healthfully. She can take walks. She can plan for birth. She can meditate and pray. And all the while, guess what she's doing? While she eats healthfully, while she takes walks, while she plans, what is she doing? Most of all, as she prays and meditates, what is she doing? She's waiting And while she can do nothing directly, there's so much that she can do indirectly. She can do nothing directly, I would, I would submit. Only nature can do that. Only nature can do that. Her job is to cooperate with nature. And guess what our job is in Advent, dear friends? It's to cooperate not with nature, but with God, and that is what it means to wait. It's not twiddling your thumbs. It's certainly not boring. It's cooperating with God. 
That is what it means to wait. What does it mean to wait for God? It means to imitate a pregnant woman. Does that sound strange? Does that sound strange to you? It shouldn't. This woman has a name. Mary. Mary. Mary who sings the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. Mary who sings the Magnificat in our Book of Common Prayer, page 91 and in Canticle 15. Mary about whom we will hear next week. For what was growing, what is it that was growing and developing inside of her? Christ. Only God could bring that about. Peter's name for it, this reality that was growing and developing on, on the inside of her, that Peter's name for it today in Second Peter that Brad read to us, new heavens and new earth. New heavens and new earth. Second Peter 3.13, we wait for new heavens and new earth whose justice, where justice is at home. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for in the Christian life? What are we waiting for in the season of Advent? The same thing that Mary was waiting for during her nine-month term, the gospel's name for it, Christ. 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 The new heavens and the new earth, born of Mary's body, born of Mary's life, of Mary's passivity, of Mary's active Waiting, born of Mary's hope, born of Mary's advent. Christ himself, the new heavens and the new earth where justice is at home. Dear friends, that is worth waiting for. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.